At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, movie review on the beach, 1959. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. Welcome to the movie review of the 1959 Stanley Kramer classic, On the Beach. Starring Gregory Peck. Like any of our movie reviews, it's going to be filled with spoilers. So if you'd like to watch the movie before hearing us talk about it, please stop the recording. Go to wherever you happen to get your movies from. Amazon, your local DVD store. Watch it and then join us right back here for the review of the movie. So today we're going to be reviewing the 1959 movie On the Beach, uh, which is actually another movie about nuclear war. Surprise, surprise. But uh, we thought it would be a great movie to do. It was recommended uh, by one of our listeners, and it's a great movie to check out. Um, just I want to, as always, go through some quick facts about the movie. Um, but before I do that, I actually want to touch real quick on the podcast in general. Um, just to let you guys know how that's going. Uh, for those who are more interested or those who really enjoy the um, the monologue about the Cold War, where I'm actually finishing up my research now on the Korean War. I only have two books left to read, and I'm actually through about 25% of the first book. Um, so look, so look, for, I look forward to that in the next couple of weeks. I should be getting that finished, and I actually should be getting started with writing up the episodes uh, in the next, at least probably the next week or so. With that being said, uh, today, like I said, we're going to review this movie. Uh, typically what we do is, and I'm sure you're familiar with our other movie review episodes, we kind of go through the facts uh, of the movie, and then we're going to go scene by scene through the movie and then just kind of give you some of our final thoughts around the movie. Um, so this movie uh, actually came out, like I said, in 1959. So it's actually a little bit before the other two movies that we reviewed uh, about nuclear war, uh, namely Failsafe and um, Strangelove. Uh, although, interesting thing about this movie is that it does take place in 1964. Um, the movie takes place in Australia, uh, where most of the movie actually takes place in Australia, I should say. Um, and the movie more or less has to do with how individuals face death uh, and how they deal with that. And it, it kind of goes back to 
um, some early uh, themes in terms of, of literature. Um, the Greeks actually talked about this or thought about this a lot, and uh, especially during the, I think back about to the siege of uh, Athens and the um, uh, the Peloponnesian War, and of course the de- debate between Alcibiades and Socrates around you know how should one should live or one should uh, face one's death. You know at the time, uh, uh, Athens was experiencing the plague. Uh, because the city was basically being sieged by the, by the Spartans, and they go through this debate. Um, it's very famous in philosophy around you know how you should live a good life. <clears throat> and if you're familiar with Alcibiades, basically it's you know he kind of took the perspective that you should be hedonistic, um, i.e. you know drink, make love, and have a good time before you go. Uh, versus Socrates, who said, you know, you should love knowledge. And what's more important is how people remember you and what your reputation is, because your, reputa- your reputation outlives you, right? So that's kind of the argument around that. So, and I think some of those themes or, or ideas were reflected in this movie. Um, when the movie was made at the time, uh, which was actually kind of interesting, Australia had no real film industry. So everything had to be built from scratch. And this is actually Fred Astaire's first non-musical role as he plays the scientist Julian in the movie. Of course, because this movie came out in 1959, this is when we first started to also think and talk about nuclear war. This, just to remind you, this is before the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is they're just starting to, to really think about what would a nuclear war will look like, what would it mean. And this is one of Hollywood's like, first attempts of taking a shot at that. Um, the other interesting thing about this movie, the reason why they chose the date uh, 1964 for it to take place in is because um, it was 25 years after the end of World War II. And it's kind of ironic because t- uh, World War II started 25 years after World War I, so it was a kind of also a, a thematic, you know, every 25 years we at that point in human history we seem to be having – these big conflagrations or your world wars. And obviously, as we got closer to 1964, there was this fear that once again, we would go through another world war. It seemed like a once a generation um, event. Uh, The movie was directed by Stanley uh, Craner. He was uh, very famous for making these message types of films. And also uh, he he directed uh, such other films such as A Mad Mad World and The Defiant Ones about greed and racism. Um, You know, like I said before, this movie is very hardcore bleak. This is actually one of the most bleakest Hollywood movies I've ever seen. It was was really very much a warning film. The movie is actually based on a 1957 novel. uh, And it's in some ways it's the novel and the, and the movie are very different. Um, so in the movie, unlike the novel, no one really knows why the war began. So everyone's kind of questioning like what happened in the first place for this nuclear war to begin. But in the book, it's illustrative or interesting because in the book, a nuclear attack um, by Albania on Italy um, basically escalated. And then for it doesn't it's not really clear, but I guess in the book, um, Egypt um, then attacks the the UK, and the UK believes that the Soviets had attacked them because the Egyptians used 
um, Russian-made planes. So in response, NATO retaliates against the Soviet Union, and hence the Soviet Union retaliates against NATO and the United States, which causes this big Third World War, this nuclear confrontation. And I think what the author was, even though what he was trying to say with that is he was more concerned about the complications of nuclear proliferation. Um, He was more concerned about nuclear proliferation than he was about a a straight contest between the United States and the Soviet Union. Much of the movie takes place in Melbourne, uh, and it's actually an interesting fact that although the Australian military actually helped to film this movie, the U.S. military refused to cooperate in the making of the film. And the submarine that they actually used in the film was not an American submarine, but a Australian submarine, HMS Andrew, which uh, stood in for a U.S. nuclear submarine, even though the submarine HMS Andrew was a diesel electric boat. As I mentioned earlier, the, the author who wrote the book actually refused to uh, – his name was Neville Shute. He refused to work with the movie because he said that the, the movie was too, too far different than his book, and he, became, he uh, got angry with the director about it. The movie, commercially speaking, was also a flop. Um, as you can expect with a movie this bleak, it lost $700,000, which is about $6 million in today's money. Um, and although the film – an interesting point about this film, although it was not commercially released in the Soviet Union, there was a special screening of it that was held in Moscow and shown to 1,200 Soviet delegates. Um, the film, though, did atta- attract a little bit of a cult following, and you know, through the years there's, there's been a number of people who follow, who actually really enjoyed the movie. Um, which is one of those interesting things that happens a lot with these these movies that are just complete flops, but they're trying to give some type of social message. The film was actually remade in 2000 as an Australian TV movie. Uh, and in that example, uh, or the updated version, uh, China and the U.S. had a nuclear exchange. Um, but And that movie, is uh, the TV movie that was made in 2000, was actually a lot closer uh, to the book that was written in 1957 than the actual 1959 movie. Um, another interesting point, uh, Gregory Peck, who plays the submarine captain, uh, was a lifelong opponent of nuclear weapons and argued that they should not even have been used in World War II. And he was deeply opposed to the Cold War and Ronald Reagan and especially uh, Star Wars or SDI. Uh, and... Another interesting fact about the movie, uh, throughout the movie, you, they, you hear the unofficial Australian anthem, Waltzing Matilda, um, which I will admit I thought was the national anthem for Australia, but it's not from what I understand. Um, and I never knew this as well, but it's kind of ironic because it kind of goes with the theme of the movie. Um, the song is about a hobo, if I understand correctly. Uh, forgive me, Australian listeners, if I'm wrong about this, but I, I double-checked, and this is what it said. The song is about a hobo who steals a sheep and then commits suicide um, when he can't keep it. And I think that's again, goes to – it's very much like the plot of the movie uh, where everybody at the end commits suicide. So I thought that was kind of ironic that that was, the, that was what that song was about and they kept playing it throughout. And I really didn't realize that until I saw somebody point it out when I was doing some of the research, the research for this uh, episode. So now we're going to go into uh, some of the scenes uh, for this movie Um, and, you know, like we typically do. In the first scene, we see the U.S. submarine is surfacing, and it's actually the USS Sawfish. 
and it's sailing into port and you know, it's coming up and uh we then you know that it's we hear the waltzing matilda in the background and then we flash to uh this guy who's taking care of his wife and his babies you know he's getting his wife some tea and it turns out that he is a lieutenant in the australian uh, navy and his name is peter holmes and then we flash to basically a busy street and we see that people are riding horses and bikes and we assume and they do this does play out in the movie this is a result of fuel shortages um so at this point there's very few automobiles because you know gasoline and diesel fuel have become restricted so kind of everyone's kind of gone back to like the 19th century to try to get around so we see holmes report to his commanding officer uh who deploys him as a liaison officer to this american submarine sawfish and, uh, you know, they don't know how, how long – and he doesn't know how long he's going to be gone because um, he says, you know, we're going to de- deploy to the submarine. And, of course, at this point, um, they don't – they haven't spelt this out for us yet, but um, the radiation as a result of the nuclear war, which took place in 1963, it looks like, because, this, again, this, supposedly this movie is taking place in 1964, the radiation is now spreading around the world and basically kill, killing all living creatures, including people. Um, so it's only a matter of time before the radiation clouds reach Australia. Basically, they, they talk about how Australia it has about four or five months before the radiation makes it there and kills everyone. And then uh, we see Lieutenant Holmes. Uh, he comes aboard the, the uh, sawfish, and uh, he meets uh, Gregory Peck, who's the captain. And you know Gregory Peck is like, okay, well, let's get a drink. We can talk a little bit. Uh, about the mission, and then uh, they they end up talking a little bit more, and they decide to go to this club to eat a little bit. Um, so then we we flash forward to the next scene, and we're back on the beach, and then Holmes tells his wife that uh, that this new sub captain, the American Gregory Pack, is going to be coming to stay with them a couple of days, um, but she's really disturbed by this because she's like, you know, this may be too much for her to handle. You know, she doesn't really want to know about the radiation coming and she's kind of really afraid of it. And she's kind of in this situation. Well, if I deny it, I don't talk about it. I don't think about it. Then I don't have to deal with it. And she's afraid of this American submarine captain coming because she's like, well, this guy is going to be all distraught and messed up mentally because his family got killed in the nuclear exchange. And I don't want to hear anything about that. So they talk about it a little bit more, and then he's like, well, don't worry. You know, we'll get – why don't we get your friend Moira, who's like the local town drunk, and like, you know, she can hit on him, and then they could just hook up, right, and everybody will be happy. So that's kind of the plan that they have agreed to to kind of take care of him and also like just try not to talk about the nuclear war. So they decide, you know, that's how, this is how the – this is their game plan for this barbecue. So then uh, – Pack meets Moira at the train station because she's been sent there to pick him up for this uh, barbecue slash party, and uh, then they, you know we go. She she gets him in, into her buggy and they take off, and then they start you know they focus back on the party. So we're introduced at this point at the party to Fred Astaire, who is a scientist. Uh, Jules is his name. He's a British scientist, and I guess uh, he was deployed there or sent there before the nuclear war. And, you know, they're at this party and they start having this conversation, which 
Uh, we've seen them have a – we've seen a couple times. We also saw this conversation in Strange Love, and then we saw the conversation as well in um, Failsafe, this conversation around how did the nuclear war happen, you know, you know, was it right, so on and so forth, you know. And they start saying that, you know, this whole war was a mistake. And the one guy's like, well, what do you mean it was a mistake? And he's like, not like I accidentally tripped and fell and hit the trigger to start the nuclear war mistake. But he goes back to, you know, basically he even mentions vacuum tubes and transistors, uh, which is funny because we have been talking a lot about the technology and how we built these systems and then we, these systems took over and the systems grew more and more powerful. And then we basically lost control of these systems. So it was interesting that, and that the director here chose to focus more on Although he doesn't clearly state what the why the nuclear war started or why it started, he, he chooses to focus on the possibility that it was the technology that caused the nuclear war, and not a political uh, uh, misunderstanding or a nuclear pro- proliferation as the author in the book had cited. So that was an interesting point um, that, that happens. So one of the characters says basically then, well, basically it's, it's your fault. You, the, you know, the scientists, you guys basically created this weapon and then you built the systems around it in the first place and then you lost control of it. And this is why we're all about to die right now. And, of course, the scientist is like, well, that's not fair. You know, we warned you about it. And then, you know, the guy's like, yeah, but you guys kept building them, right? So, you know, and then uh, because of this discussion – uh, Lieutenant Holmes' wife becomes she becomes very upset and she basically runs off and cries. Do you see any parallels between the concerns that we have today about technology and about how it was celebrated just a few years ago and now people are starting to have a backlash and concerns about it? You know, I think that's a great question. Um, I think especially today uh, we have there are people who are like you said, technological optimists, and they see technology as a solution to our problems. And it often is in some ways. Um, But you also have the pessimists who see technology as not necessarily a solution, but only a ticket to a new set of problems. Um, And, of course, this actually goes way back, even before the Cold War. You know, at the end of the 19th century – you know, with the technological progress that we were having then, uh, with things like the steam engine and uh, the internal combustion engine and the, the telegraph, people thought technology, you know, we were always pushing forward, always developing. And some people thought, like, you know, this technology can get out of hand. And you kind of saw a pushback away from, I'd say the real first pushback away from technological optimism came uh, after World War I um, because, you know, with the development of the machine gun and the horror of the First World War, people kind of got the idea that these new technologies could be turned against us. Um, but there were still those who were, you know, saying, well, this is going to be – this is going to really help us. And I think you always had people, especially in science fiction, who were – basically warning about those the particular dangers and i think that that is actually very um substantive to our own our current time because if you look at it now we have you know these new technology like in the big even if we go back 10 15 years everyone said the internet 
will bring the world together and the world will be a more free place and, you know, everything will be more kumbaya, so to speak, right? As totalitarian regimes fall apart, I remember this was the whole, you know, in 2000, 2000, early 2001, this was the whole uh, Mick world thing that uh, the end of history, like Francis Fukuyama talked about how uh, democracy would just come about everywhere because of this technology and uh, and because of the liberalization of societies. So we wouldn't have to worry about authoritarian regimes anymore. Everyone was saying, well, China was not – everyone – I remember back then talking in my political science class and my professor saying that China wouldn't be an, an autocratic regime in 20 years or so because technology, because of the internet. And when I think back now – even though he was, I mean, he was a, he's a brilliant guy, yeah, PhD, but now I, I'm like that statement seems so foolish in, in retrospect, and that's not to say anything about him, but I think you know, we sometimes let the technology get ahead of us and our dreams of what, what it can be, and I think now no one – you know, in the, in the early 2000s, no one was talking about how we were going to be dealing with issues like – you know, uh, cybersecurity threats and how we were going to be dealing with issues like social engineering or uh, scams or um, fake news and all these different things now that we have to worry about that we didn't have to worry about 10, 20 years ago. So, you know, that's the, the we didn't see necessarily see the dangers of that. And now when we're talking about, you know, the, the new things like 5G, you know, Internet of Things, um, artificial intelligence and people are saying about how these again if you hear people are saying it's going to revolutionize revolutionize our society it probably will but i think a lot of times we don't think about the bad things that are going to come with this and you have people like uh musk and others who are saying like you know this is really dangerous like some of these concepts some of these things can get out of our control and i think we as a society or even as a world, sometimes we forget that, you know, with all these new powers comes, I guess, I don't want to say new responsibilities because that sounds kind of cliche, like a DC novel. But, um, you know, th there are there are always going to be negative side effects that come with new technologies and, and new capabilities. And I think we as a society should be mindful of that. So then at the same party, they flash forward to Myra and she's uh, she's talking to Peck and uh, they are you know, she asked him, well, where were you when the war started? Like, you know, what happened with you? You know, basically, why are you alive? And he explains that, you know, his submarine was out at the sea. And when they surfaced off of Iwo Jima, they did some air readings and they could tell like the radioactivity was like off the chart. So then they sailed south and they stopped at one point in the Philippines and it was still too radioactive there. So they kept on going until they got to Australia. And then, um, you know, that's, that's, basically where, where he's been since then and then she asks him if his family are still alive and he's like you know he starts talking about his family and um you know basically they start talking about how long it's going to take for the radiation to reach australia and then moira who's drunk she starts to cry and she asks peck to hold her and she passes out and then basically he puts her to bed basically showing that like he's you know he's a gentleman you know, he's a really upstanding guy. You know, this is really basically, they, you know, the director trying to build up his character. So then we flash forward to uh, Peck taking orders from the Australians. And basically they're telling him to travel 
I think to travel to uh, to Antarctica to, to test for radiation readings. Um, and basically one of the scientists uh, has a theory that potentially uh, weather effects because of rain, snowfall, etc., and the fact that uh, Antarctica is so cold that it might lessen the radiation and they might be able to move some people to Antarctica. And so they start talking about the possibility that, you know, maybe we'll be lucky. You know, maybe we're so far away now. The war was so long ago that the radiation will start to dissipate and we might be able to survive down here in Australia. So then Moira tracks Peck down at the naval station uh, and his submarine. And uh, then they go to um, – they meet. we meet up. We see one of the, the scientists, Jules, from the party. He's there. And he's helping with some uh, weather equipment and I guess some uh, equipment that to test radiation levels. And they're bringing that onto the submarine so they could make this trip to Antarctica or the area around there. Um, and then they actually, just as a point of interest, and the, and one of the shots, actually a few of the shots, they show the Australian aircraft carrier uh, Melbourne. And uh, we actually mentioned or talked briefly about uh, the aircraft carrier in episode 57. So figure if you're interested. So it turns out that they're actually also receiving radio signals or Morse code, which is coming from what they believe is San Diego. Um, So the Australian admiral tells Peck to actually check that out as well uh, while he's out to sea. So then uh, Peck and Myra, they they go uh, sailing one day. And, you know, they're out at the beach um, and but, you know, they're winning. They're going they're doing great. But then she decides that she's bored. So she turns the ship over. They lose the race um, and then they fall in the water. But then they swim, swim ashore. And then uh, meanwhile, on the beach, uh, they, you know, because they're like wrestling and stuff. Lieutenant Holmes and um, the doctor, uh, or Dr. Jules, that is a scientist, they start talking about suicide pills and uh, Moira and Peck are wrestling in the background, and Holmes' wife then grows jealous about this, and then she's like, well, how come we don't wrestle? And it's just kind of one of those funny moments. Um, And then for whatever reason, it gets super awkward, and I don't know if you knew what was going on at that point, but they just like stop and like everyone's like looking at each other and then they just kind of like all move away and the scene kind of ends. I didn't really quite understand what happened there, but just a temporary reminder of the situation that they're actually in. An interesting fact about the movies, actually they had a very hard time filming this scene um, because this, when they filmed uh, the movie outside of Melbourne, there were a lot of local people who were interested in the movie because Obviously, especially at that time, not a lot of movies were filmed in Australia. So a lot of people were proud and happy that their little town was going to be in this movie. So people actually crowded the beach and were all around. So and one of the problems they had was every time they took a shot or they, you know, they, they stopped, people would begin clapping, right? So they would ruin their, their, their noise equipment. So they'd have to reshoot. And ever when they ended the shot again, people would begin to clap again. So... They had to do a lot of takes on the beach, and this was like, I guess, a problem in the production that I thought was kind of funny. So then Holmes talks to an old friend, and uh, basically because he's trying to get these suicide pills for him and his wife, he wants to get them early because he's afraid that when he's away at sea, the radiation might reach there early and he won't be there. So he wants to have his wife be able to have 
these pills to be able to commit suicide with her and her daughter. And so then he gives the, the pills to her and he tries to explain to her about using them. But then she just has a complete emotional breakdown and they have like a little argument about it. So then Pac and Moira, they, uh, they have a breakdown to each other as well. There's a lot of breakdowns and crying in this movie, I have to admit. And which is understandable, you know, that, you know, basically he starts, wow, cold blooded, Jeff, you know, and watching the movie is just, it seems like there's a lot of them. So it's just, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of, which makes sense because everyone's dying and everyone's trying to deal with these emotions. But also at times I feel like they, they just, they, they don't push the storyline forward. And maybe that, that might be the, the product of a late 20th, 20, early 21st century, exposure to film uh because i think our movies move a lot quicker right the storyline um where this there's a lot of dialogue but i feel like sometimes it's just the same dialogue that they're going they're going over at this point like i said uh peck and mora are, are talking to each other and you basically he's saying that he can't accept that his wife and children are dead and because he just can't imagine it because he always imagined that he might potentially die not that they would die uh, so it's, he finds it really upsetting, and the best way for him to kind of like cope with this is just to imagine that they're not dead. Um, and then she's kind of so upset because she thinks, you know, she, she uh, that he loves his wife, but she wants to kind of like be with him, but she doesn't want to be like the shadow of his wife because at one point she thought that she could kind of live in his wife's shadow and she would, wouldn't be she wouldn't mind being there, but then she's like, actually, I don't want to be a substitute. And who really does? I mean, I guess. But so she wasn't happy with that about that. And then they, they kind of have a little breakup. Um, and then uh, – but then she also – at this point, she's like, okay, well, I had a, a little breakup with him. I'm not even sure what to call that, but I guess they had a breakup at that point. And then she runs off to try to hook up with uh, Julian or Fred Astaire, uh, because I guess they don't really explain it, but at one time he had a thing for her, and now she's, like, semi-throwing herself at him, and he's like, nah, I wasn't good enough for you before, I'm not good enough for you now, kind of thing. And I also, I think he just, he doesn't say this, and he pretends he cares about her through the rest of the movie, and I think he does a little bit, but also I think he takes some pleasure in being able to turn her down at this specific moment, you know? I think he took... More pleasure in that than actually hooking up with her. Where he was just like, well, now now you want to be with me, right? Now when I'm no good. And he was just like, no, I'm not going to be with you. So I think he I, – I, it looked like he had some shroud of that he really enjoyed that moment. So then also you know, he mentions to her that they're going to be selling out the next morning. So she's kind of upset about that as well. So then um, they flash forward and they, they do sell out. And, uh, you know, they, they go to, they sell down to Antarctica or that area, and then they confirm that the radiation's still coming and it's not depleted at all. And then, um, you know, they're like, okay, well, let's set sail for San Francisco and see where we, if we can figure out, um, where this, uh, this signal's coming from, right? Because there's some hope, you know, we don't know where the signal's coming in from. Maybe some people have survived in the U.S., right? So they sail out to go to San Francisco. So on the way there, Julian and Lieutenant Holmes have this conversation in the mess hall where basically Holmes comes in and he's crying. And he's like, well, how can I tell my wife or try to convince her 
to take the suicide pills, uh, you know, how can I convince her to kill herself along with our kid, right? This is, like, so horrible. And then Julian basically is like, dude, I envy you. Um, because you know, I don't have, I, I don't have anybody to worry about. Like no, and no one cares about me. I'm a complete, you know, I'm a complete bachelor. I wasted all my time. I don't have any kind of family. No one loves me. You at least have people that love and care about you. You can at least hold on to that before you die. Right. So then, uh, Holmes feels a lot better and he's just like, Oh yeah, thanks for the pep talk. And then he just leaves and he's just fine. Um, which to me, I thought was kind of like, I get it on one hand that he has something that he should value, but on the other hand, he's still going to die. He still has to com- explain to his wife that she has to commit suicide and they, ha- and they have to kill their kid. I mean, it's, pr- it's still pretty horrible. I agree that he whines too much, and I get that because they're all in the same situation. They're all going to die. I-, I get that. But on the other hand, I don't think there would have been such a complete 180 where you're just like, oh yeah, now I'm, um, um, you know, I gotta, I gotta jump on my step now, and like everything's gonna be great. So I thought that, you know, that pep talk was a little bit too influential. I don't know, maybe it's just me. So then they sail into San Francisco Bay, and they, you know, they they get there, they put up the periscope, and they start looking around, and everything's fine, right? You could tell that the city, there's, you can't see anybody, you can't see any people. There doesn't seem to be any traffic or anything like that. But it's a ghost town, right? You don't see any people moving around or anything like that through the periscope, uh, which is actually interesting because um, in the book and in the later move, the T- made-for-TV movie in 2000, uh, San Francisco is completely destroyed, right? The city's completely devastated. Um, so for this, I think the director just wanted to, to really talk about the effects of radiation and radiation just killing other people and the buildings and everything else being left, right? I think because maybe his thought was it gives it a lot more eerier feeling. So then they pinpoint that the actual signal is coming from uh, a refinery along the coast um, off of San Diego. So they decide, well, okay, well, that's where we're going to go. Um, but before that happens, uh, one of the sailors who's actually from San Francisco, um, he had asked, like, hey, can I take a look up the periscope to see my hometown? And they're like, sure. And he looks and he's like, okay, thanks. But then he, like, escapes from the submarine out one of the, the hatches and he just, like, swims into the harbor. And, you know, they're like – so then uh, – Peck is – he asks Jules and he's like, well, how long does he have to live? And he's like, dude, I don't know, maybe, maybe a few days, a week, something like that. So then they decide that they're going to spend the night there and then the next morning they're going um, to sail t- to San Diego or to this refinery. So the sub settles on the bottom of the sea floor and then the next morning they wake up and they see this guy like out on a boat like fishing. And uh, you know, so they come up. They – they you know they have a microphone on the outside it looks like on the outside of one of the periscopes so they start talking to him and they ask him how he feels and he says that he feels fine um but he has a stomach ache and he said and you know they ask him like what's going on did you see anybody in town so on and so forth and he's like yeah everyone's dead i went to my parents house they're dead and he's like that's kind of really depressing but there's a lot of stores and stuff open, and you know he said his stomach felt bad, but he just took some alcohol seltzer, so he should be okay. And another interesting point: when they filmed this part of the movie, um, they 
it's rumored that they actually paid the guards on the Golden Gate Bridge $500 a piece to stop traffic so they could film the bridge without any traffic going over it. So that was kind of interesting. Um, so then they finished this conversation with the guy who basically who left the ship, went AWOL. And they, they're like, okay, well, we're not going to come back for you. And he's like, okay, well, I just wanted to die here in my hometown anyways. And they're like, okay, well, well, well good luck. And then they leave with the submarine. So at this point, they have another conversation uh, about why the war started again in the officer's mess. And they talk about MAD or mutually assured destruction. And basically, again, Dr. Jules talks about how we lost control of the bombs and it was probably – the war was probably started by accident. Um, so then um, they reach uh, – they reach the refinery off the coast and uh, they send in uh, one of the members of the crew in a, in a radiation suit uh, to try to figure out where the signal is coming from. And – they go out. They find the radio room uh, to this refinery, which actually you know has a power plant on it, so the generators are still running. So it turns out there's a Coke bottle that got caught in a window shade, and it's like pulling on the string of the of the window shade, and it like it's falling on this Morse code key, and it's just basically pinging out this random Morse code message, and that's where the message has been coming from. So that everyone's basically let down because they went on this wild goose chase where they're trying to find out where this Morse code was coming from, and they were hoping that it was people on the other end, and obviously there was no people whatsoever. So at this point, the whole crew and Peck, they returned to Australia, and you know then they tell Peck that he's become commander-in-chief of all American naval forces, and I'm not really sure how this happened or, you know, because there's, since there's no United States, there's no Washington, D.C. So my only guess is that the American ambassador in Australia, in Australia uh, made him the commander in chief of all naval forces, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, and it doesn't really matter at that point because he's just com- captain of one submarine. So I, I guess. So then they decide to go to this crazy car race this amateur uh, Australian Grand Prix race where Julian is basically uh, – he's going to be one of the drivers because I guess at this point everyone's just trying to stay busy the last so many months alive that they have. So they figure why not have this crazy car race and um, you know at this point he was able to buy a Ferrari uh, to, to basically go in this race and – uh, he's never ridden. Uh, obviously, he's never been in a, a, a race before. And he's just like, well, this is something I've always wanted to do, so I'm just going to do it. And I would imagine it looks like all the other uh, drivers are amateurs as well. So, you know, they all have nondescript cars, any kind of car they could get, and they all start driving. And Jules actually had bought a uh, Ferrari. And it's a seven, it's 750 Monza, Monza Spider, which is actually a real Ferrari. And there were only 35 of them built. And this is actually the, one of the Ferraris he actually uses in the film, which is kind of interesting. And they're having this race and people are crashing and cars are exploding and people are dying. Um, but he actually wins. And so it's like the crowning achievement of his life. You know, the one thing that he always wanted to do and he was able to do. So he's kind of happy with himself for that. So then after this, Myra and Peck, they decide to go fishing. So they go on this uh, fishing trip and, you know, they have a great time and they make love and like everything's great. 
Um, but then, you know, time catches up with everyone and people start getting sick uh, with radiation sickness in Australia. And, uh, you know, some people, they show in the movie turn to religion and there's, you know, these big religious gatherings. And then also the Australian government starts issuing poison pills or basically suicide pills for everyone to commit commit suicide, which I don't know if they would – any government would ever do that. I, I, that I kind of question, um, you know, how could – you know, I'm sure a lot of people would be opposed to it. I'm sure that would cause a lot of consternation. I'm sure it would be a very debated issue about whether the government is going to order or deliver mass amounts of suicide pills to people. Um, so that part, I, I thought there, there should have been a little bit more debate or argument about that. It's kind of weird, um, especially in a 1950s film that, that they would just have, everyone would just commit suicide. Um, so then at this point, uh, Peck goes and talks to the crew, uh, and basically he is like, you know, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to stay here? Do, what do you, how do you want to die? And they basically have already voted and they were like, you know what? We want to sail home, and we want to die in America. We don't want to be dying here in Australia with all these Australians. So they get in the submarine. So then uh, Peck, since he is the captain, he feels obliged to go with them uh, to, to, you know, to, to go on the submarine. But they only have a day or two before the radiation hits a critical level, and they, and they can leave for the U.S. So then Moira drives off to meet Peck uh, before he leaves, and then... We see also Julian uh, commit suicide via his carbon monoxide. So what he does is he takes his Ferrari, he puts it up on some blocks, and then he closes his garage door, and then he basically just revs the engine, and then he just dies while inhaling the uh, the fumes from the Ferrari, which is hardcore. And then um, basically this point then you know uh, moira gets to the dock you know she declares her love for pack and everything they they basically have their last whatever they talk to each other and then she goes and uh she goes in the hill outside of the port to watch his submarine sail away and that's where she dies and then we see him sailing off into the sunset uh, and then um, they focus back to one of the banners that was out there for one of the religious rallies. When I talked about earlier, a lot of people had started turning to religion um, for the movie. Uh, and, you know, basically they focus on the words, there is still time, brother. And, you know, it's basically it's a warning to people about nuclear war. The saying, you know, we still have time to try to stop something like this from happening. What would you do in that situation, Jeff? So the the radiation's coming, and uh, you know, I, obviously that's a very tough question. Like, what would I do? Um, you know, I'd like to say that I would have spent the time with my wife and my cats and my friends, and I would have tried to, you know, be with those people and have a good time. Um, and you know, cracked open some some cold ones before before my time. I guess if that's the situation, um, I don't know if I feel comfortable with the suicide pills because you know I don't I don't advocate. I don't think uh, suicide is the right thing to do uh, under most circumstances. So I I don't think I would have taken the pills if they would have been given to me. Um, and you know, you could always. You know, try to lessen the effects of the radiation as long as you can. Uh, 
Um, I guess that's the short answer of what I would do. I mean, obviously, I would have a lot more time to think about it. What would you do, Dave? Whiskey bottle and a shotgun. Okay. Um, the one thing I did think about this movie, and just as some final thoughts around it, um, obviously it's bleak and depressing, but the one thought I had was, which was interesting because they talked a lot about it, or not a lot, but there was a good amount of conversation about it in Dr. Strangelove, but none here is, uh, there's no talk about mine shafts or people going underground, right? Like they, they, it seems like the Australian government didn't even try to think about, well, how can we save people? Um, and I'm sure there's some deep mine shafts in Australia because in this situation, they would have had enough time to save a portion of the population and to move food and resources down into the mines, right? Because they had like five months. It seems like they should have been trying to figure out how many people we can save or in a way in which we can save people from the effects of radiation, right? Where it seems like they didn't even try. They were just like, oh, well, let's hope the radiation doesn't get to us. Oh, I guess it's getting to us. I guess that's it, right? I, I didn't feel like they really the – go, the Australian government uh, and the people that we saw that were in charge really tried to make an effort to save humanity. It seems like they were just like, oh, I guess that's the way it's going to be. Let me just issue everybody with suicide pills. There's a reality TV show in the United States called Doomsday Preppers, and it follows – these survivalist or meets and introduces a, a new survivalist every single episode of and kind of tactics and ways that they're going to hopefully survive whatever type of apocalypse is going to come forward. Was this something that was kind of prominent during this time frame, the 1950s? Is this when we start to see the rise of uh, bomb shelters that we have a lot here in Los Angeles and perhaps elsewhere in the United States and the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. I would say that people back then were more preppers than we are today. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that had bomb shelters. The government invested in bomb shelters at that time. A lot of people thought about how to survive a nuclear war. It wasn't really until the 1980s um, where we stopped preparing for nuclear wars. And a lot of it was because of um, – disagreements with Reagan's initiatives around the, the end of the Cold War because people thought – though the idea was that some people had was that if we prepare for nuclear war, then we're more likely to have it and we lessen the danger of mutually assured destruction and the deterrence level. So, so that's why some people argued against us preparing for nuclear war. Um, but that idea was very prevalent at the time as well. A lot of people were, were building their own, especially in the 19, late 1950s and the 1960s, people were building their own bunkers. There were a lot of bunkers that were being built on both sides in the Cold War. So a lot of people were preparing to survive a nuclear war. And I think it's interesting that in this, they, when they showed this movie, that you have so many people who are just so willing to give up and there's no discussion or conversation about bunkers or areas that could withstand radiation. Um, especially it's almost as it seems the movie's very like hopeless. It's just like hopelessness uh, on, on tap and even our science, you know, we're, we're so, I think that was part of the message that our science couldn't even save us. So, you know, it, it's very, again, very depressing, but uh, you know, I wonder if it would have been, 
that clear cut. I, I wish if they were, I mean, if they were going to make it that clear cut, I think they, in the movie, they should have at least addressed the issue of bunkers or mine shafts or, because obviously that was a very prevalent idea at the time. So it was actually kind of surprising to me that they didn't talk about that whatsoever. After this very philosophical um, Cold War podcast, do you have any final thoughts? I do, yeah. I think this movie, it, by its very nature, is very philosophical. Um, so, I'm, you know, this is a lot of philosophy for a Cold War podcast, but I think, again, it goes to the nature of the film. Um, and then, you know, it's just some other, I guess, I had some other final thoughts about the movie. I think one of the other interesting things is they talk a lot about, you know, Australia didn't use any atomic bombs, right? They, they weren't a, a player in whatever this war that happened was, but yet they're kind of like paying the consequences for it. And they're, I think they're trying to illustrate in that, that basically we live in a sort of semi tyranny that a few nations and a few men basically hold the, the power of life and death over literally billions of people in the world. Right. And how sometimes we don't think about how the decisions of maybe 40 or 50 guys around the world could affect the lives of billions of people um, with nuclear weapons. So it's an interesting concept um, that I think they should have spent a little bit more time in the film, but they don't. But it's it's a, a good to illustrate. And basically, again, like because our individual liberty is basically an illusion as basically – or basically, I think it's what they're trying to argue is that our individual liberty is an illusion as long as there's nuclear weapons that exist. So, and then you know, the war, the movie is very much an anti-war movie, um, and I think that's why you know Gregory Peck played you know the role that he did in the movie is because it really goes to, you know, this is what could happen. This is how our technology could turn against us. This is why we shouldn't be building these weapons and these systems in the first place. And how we need to kind of move beyond this. So, and, you know, in a way it's, it's very um, similar to um, As the Cranes Fly, because if you think about it, both these movies came out uh, roughly the same time. I mean, this came out two years after the uh, As the Cranes Fly. But again, it's a very anti-war message um, at the end of the 1950s. You know, another interesting thing, which... Uh, we again see in this movie, um, which we saw in The Cranes Fly, which we saw in uh, also in Failsafe, is that we don't really see the enemy. Um, especially in this sh- movie, again, uh, that same theme again, we don't even know how the war started. We, there's not even clear that it was in the movie, again, not necessarily in the book, but it is not even, it's not even clear that there was a straight exchange of nuclear weapons between the United States and the Soviet Union, especially since San Francisco looks to be intact, although potentially maybe the Soviets just hit the eastern seaboard. So that's also kind of an interesting theme that's been running throughout these Cold War movies that we've been seeing. Yeah, frankly, I I thought it was a pretty frightening film. Although, you know, once I did a little bit more research, I found out that actually the chances of – you know, the entire population being wiped out by radiation in and of itself is highly unlikely. Um, however, if it was to kill everyone in the population, it would be through a either a uh, nuclear winter or a situation where it blocks out the sun and then 
all the vegetation dies. If you've seen or read the book by uh, Cormac McCarthy, The Road, you know, that type of situation. Or alternatively, if they happen to um, put cobalt with the nuclear devices and make the doomsday device that uh, Stalin ended up, uh, or Khrushchev, excuse me, ended up uh, coming out against. Other than that, uh, and, and so once I found that out, you know, I felt a little bit safer, although living in the major metropolitan area of Los Angeles, I don't think we'd have a good chance of surviving the World War. And on that happy note, we want to thank you for joining us for Movie Review Episode 5, On the Beach. If you have any questions, suggestions, any movies that you'd like to hear in the future, please let us know on social media, and you can find those, uh, our Facebook links, Twitter on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. While there, please consider becoming a Patreon donator and helping us keep this podcast going. And also, if you could fill out the survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. An ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.